Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. On this episode, I'm joined by expert Tim Caulfield, and we discuss the level of false information about COVID-19 that he has dubbed an infodemic. Tim is a law prof and Canada research chair at the University of Alberta. He's authored a number of books, including Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? And he's even hosted a Netflix show, A User's Guide to Cheating Death. Most recently, he's been appointed as a member of the Royal Society of Canada Task Force on COVID-19 and received federal funding to investigate this crisis of misinformation we see online. Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. You have recently been appointed to the Royal Society of Canada Task Force to help support Canada's response to and recovery from COVID-19. You've also received funding to address what you've described as the infodemic of misinformation in relation to this pandemic. What are you currently working on and and how are you contributing to these efforts? Well, there's just so much going on right now uh, in this this area. You know, I've been studying health misinformation for, you know, really a couple decades and I've seen nothing like this. It's just been absolutely insane. Uh, So the misinformation has been absolutely everywhere. Uh, whether you're talking about the source uh, of the virus, whether you're talking about how we're supposed to respond, whether you're talking about cures and preventative strategies, the, the public discourse is just completely permeated with, with this misinformation, with noise. Uh, and so our, our team is first trying to map that, research what's going on out there. So we're looking at a whole bunch of different things. We're looking at news media. We're looking at social media. We're also looking at search engines, you know, how what the kind of things, the kind of results people get when they, when they search for answers. We're going to look at all that. And then uh, some of my other colleagues like Gordon Pennycook in Saskatchewan, he's doing really cool work. He's part of our team and he's doing really cool work on how people respond to that misinformation. You know, how does it impact their perceptions and behaviors? And then of course, what we want to do is come up with recommendations. We're doing it. It's a scholarly project, but look, this is a, an issue right now. So we want to come up with some recommendations uh, quickly. And we're also working with an organization called Media Smarts. I don't know if you know Media Smarts. They did the, the House Hippo campaign. I don't know if you, you, you're a young man. So <laughs> I don't you remember this. Do you remember the House Hippo campaign? I do not. Yeah, so it was a, ca- a really fun campaign, you know, really trying to highlight um, misinformation. It's a, me- a media literacy organization. But, but we're, we're working with them to come out with a, a campaign, look, in, in the real near future, about how Canadians can contribute to the battle against misinformation. So we, we've got a lot a lot on the go. So that campaign, I don't remember. It, maybe it predated me or, or, or I just wasn't paying attention at the time. Presumably, there's a greater challenge now because of the pace at which information moves with social media. You're so right. I mean, this is a pandemic that's happening in the age of social media, which has really transformed. And research tells us this again and again. It's transformed how we get health information. It's transformed how we build communities uh, around these topics. Uh, it trans- has transformed uh, how research is disseminated. It really has changed the entire landscape. Uh, that's one of the reasons we're, we're focusing a lot on social media. You know, it's interesting because we've looked at the news media in the past and, and you know, they, <laughs> they always don't do an ideal job. You know, a lot of misinformation in the past, you know, was coming from the traditional sources of news. But we get the sense that in this space with the coronavirus, traditional news media has been pretty good, not, not ideal, but pretty darn good, pretty quickly. Uh, they, I think it, there was a recognition this was a big issue and, and the reporting has been, and been pretty responsible. So it really is social media. That's, that's the animal, that's the beast that is really 
playing a big role here. And I receive a lot of correspondence that can be quite depressing and takes a toll on one reading the emails from individuals who are have lost their income, who have lost their businesses and are really struggling. At the same time, you are reviewing content on a daily basis. And I've read stories about the mental health impact on Facebook content moderators. You, you effectively are playing that kind of role. Does it take a toll to dredge the depths of, of our humanity in that way? It kind of does, to be honest with you. I wake up in the morning and I, I really dig into this right away and uh, it's just nonstop. It really is uh, incredible. And, and it's in some respects, it's getting better and in some respects it's getting worse. So it's getting better in this way. I, I think you're getting so many organizations taking misinformation seriously. Uh, exactly. There are bunkers out there. There, you know, World Health Organization has a myth-busting website. Uh, universities are tackling this. Governments are, you know, this is an issue, the infodemic, the spread of misinformation that has been taking, taken very, very seriously now. So I think that's a good, good thing. And hopefully that will be one of the legacies uh, of this crisis. But I also sense, and I bet you see this too in your world, we're starting to move into this phase of polarization, right? Where uh, a lot of the misinformation now seems to have an ideological spin to it. Uh, it seems to be attached to uh, mistrust. Uh, you're starting to see conspiracy theories really you know, take root. I mean, just look at, look at what's happening with the misinformation around the idea that the virus was man-made. You know, that's been largely debunked by the scientific community as much as they can, right? You know, there's a consensus that it wasn't man-made. There's also been a consensus from the intelligence community that it did not, it's not man-made and didn't come from the lab. Despite that, you're seeing that conspiracy theory really take root. And of course, that's because it, it, it aligns with certain agendas, it aligns with certain ideologies. And so it, it's going to be very difficult to dislodge. And a worrying trend for me is also the impact of individual behavior on the rest of us, where anti-vaxxer issues were a problem before, and now we see an even more acute problem where we see rallies or protests of people with signs who discount the seriousness of the pandemic. And there's a, people who don't believe that a vaccine is, is warranted or, or required. And that puts, so long as people act on that misinformation and really take that misinformation to heart, that puts the rest of us at, at some risk. It does. It really does. And research tells us that. It, uh, I don't know if you've been following the surveys that have been coming out. Uh, and there's a little bit of deviation in, in the findings. Uh, but there is a significant portion of Canadians who think that this has been overblown, right? And it's usually the youth. Um, there was one study that came out just today from Manitoba, and it was, it was of individuals from Manitoba um, that found, I believe it was over 40% of, of males between the age of 18 and 34, I think was the demo, uh, that thought this was overblown. I mean, that's huge numbers, right? And, and, and that sort of hints that these individuals think that there's some other agenda at play. You know, it speaks to a lack of trust. Uh, and there was a study, again, I, I, I have to be careful not to overstate this myself because I wasn't able to get the original survey. It was a media report of a survey in the United States that found that over 30% of Americans, about a third of Americans, aren't going to get the vaccine virus rolls out. So you are 100% correct. You know, this kind of misinformation is having a tangible impact 
on public health. And, and unfortunately, that might just intensify as we try to use vaccines to address the issue. You mentioned the United States. Now, you have previously written about the negative impact in many ways of celebrity influence and the relationship between celebrity and our culture. Am I right that you read every issue cover to cover of People magazine? Uh, I can, yeah, I did do that, man. That's that fun little uh, study hasn't come up for a while. I man, I bless <laughs> bless you for thinking that was a good idea, but I that would probably take a toll on your mental health too. But uh, I, I, did you learn enough to never want to read that kind of thing ever again? You know, I will say that I will say this about this. I actually thought it was gonna be a fun little study. I, I kind of thought it was going to be fun. You know, huh. It's so frivolous, right? You know, and holy cow, it got tiresome incredibly quickly. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, uh, that takes me, though, celebrity influence to what I view as a real challenge with misinformation and disinformation in the course of this pandemic, where we are not talking about the fringes of the internet. So can we plausibly tackle disinformation and misinformation when it's not coming from those fringes but it's coming from, in some cases, the largest megaphone in North America, if not the world, the office of the President of the United States. It's an excellent point because a lot of the things that we're hearing about about the coronavirus feel pretty fringy, right? And, and a really good example of, you know, there's a couple of them, but let's, let's look at the 5G example, this idea that 5G technology is somehow spreading the coronavirus and making it worse, which doesn't, it's not even scientifically plausible. I don't know what the, bio, <laughs> the biological action would be there, but that is a very, really kind of a fringy idea that was moved to the center because of prominent voices. And there's a lot of other examples uh, that we could use. There was an interesting study that came out from Oxford I'm going to say just a couple of weeks ago, um, that found that uh, 20% of the misinformation, so this is a study of things that had been fact-checked in the media, so stuff that had to be debunked, and they found that 20% of those items came from prominent individuals, celebrities, et cetera. So that doesn't, that's a pretty high percentage, but you, you would, might think it would be even higher. But what's really interesting is they found that about 70%, I think it was 69% of the bits of information, the bits of misinformation that were shared on social media came from those individuals, right? So that really gives an example of, of the power of celebrity, right? That, that those are the voices that are magnified when you turn to social media. And, and that's how these, these myths spreads, uh, like, like the 5G uh, conspiracy theory. You mentioned the 5G conspiracy theory. Are there, in the course of your many years debunking harmful myths and pseudoscience, are there any particular myths or junk science, treatments, cures, whatever it might be that stand out that are particularly ridiculous or memorable? You know, there are so many. How much time <laughs> do you have? And, and I've tried a lot, a lot of them. I don't know if you knew that. I've tried a lot of them just because I think it was important to, to experience it. Uh, it it's interesting because one thing I will say that the, a lot of these therapies, a lot of these conspiracy theories, were around before the pandemic. And it's fascinating to see how they have been rejigged to become a coronavirus cure or a coronavirus <laughs> conspiracy theory. Have you noticed that? You know, the right. 5G thing was around before this. Right. The pharma crisis was before. All these things are kind of rejigged. Garlic cures everything. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, so many. But, you know, the one, one that we're studying um, right now is this immune-boosting myth. Um, it's become incredibly dominant, right? And that's a really good example, I think, of, of a myth that feels intuitively correct. It's actually scientifically wrong. But think of the number of products that are sold right now 
based on that premise. And that's a good example of, of you know, sort of a subtle form of misinformation that's having a real impact. And I, I mentioned garlic, but of course, the worst thing that will happen if someone believes in, in that particular myth is they will have something delicious in their meal potentially, but the, if someone takes hydroxychloroquine, they could potentially die. And so there, there are real serious risks to this information spreading. There are, and, and we've talked about the long-term public health implications if we, we see an erosion in, in confidence in vaccines, and that's a massive impact, right? But, but there have been deaths associated with misinformation. Uh, there have been people, you know, people are wasting money. There's financial loss because of misinformation. And I think one of the greatest harms, and this is hard to quantify, uh, but I think it exists, is just that it adds so much to the chaotic information environment that we're living in, right? It makes it more difficult to tease out what's real and what's not real. It makes it more difficult for individuals to take action, you know, science-based actions, because there's just, you know, they don't know what to do. There's so much misinformation out there. So yeah, a really important topic, and, and I'm glad that people are taking it seriously. And I'm glad people are taking it seriously as well, and you've certainly identified the problem even before the pandemic in vivid and entertaining detail. Do you have a solution or a set of solutions for us too? I, I think there are things that, that we can do. It's, it's one of those problems, like so many problems that we have now that we're gonna have to come at it from every direction, right? We're gonna need stronger regulatory action. We're gonna need the government to you know, take action against these providers that are selling bunk. Uh, we need more truth in advertising. We need regulatory bodies like the College of Physicians and Surgeons to monitor their members. Uh, so we need all that. Um, I also think, of course, we need creative communication strategies. We need the scientific community to step up and, and become a more prominent voice on social media and to do it in a way that's engaging, in a way that, that invites people in, right? That's not disrespectful and it's fun. And, and to make science and, and fact-checking and accuracy part of our culture, right? I, I hashtag think accuracy. <laughs> you know, I think that's, right. that's something we can do. But there's also really interesting research, and Gordon Pennycook, my, again, my colleague at, from Saskatchewan, he's done research that show, and this sounds ridiculously simple, but there's evidence to back it up. If we can just encourage people to pause and think before they share, we can really have a, uh, an impact on the spread of misinformation. Because what his work, he's found and other researchers around the world have found is that most people don't want to share misinformation. They don't have some nefarious agenda. They, they're just in a hurry. They, it's an interesting headline, you know. Social media is this really frantic platform, right, that, that invites us to do things quickly. And so a lot of this research shows if we can just get people to think about accuracy, right, and to pause before they share, we can have a real impact. It's interesting you note also the importance of a strong communication strategy. I'm reminded this will be an old example, but John Quincy Adams wrote about the importance of oratory, and he suggested that, you know, unlike sort of the attack on oratory as just a matter of sophistry, if people who had aims that were malintentioned in some way were to be good at this, then all the more reason for us to be even better at this and, and, and to win the argument in the end. And so oratory, just as in some ways, if we're faced with a communications crisis of, of bad communication and, and misinformation in communication, we have to, truth has to win in the end. How, how, did you, how did you come to this dedication to the pursuit of truth in the course of your life then? I think it was, it was this slow march towards this kind of passion. You know, I've always been a science geek. 
my early days as an academic, I, I really was looking at health policy and the evidence around health policy. And, and that really caused me to see the degree to which misinformation played a role in all of our lives, in all of our lives, right, in everything we do. And I, I just became obsessed with, with trying to, to correct that, in part because we live in this time of, of, of science and um, rational uh, analysis. And, and it's a shame, I, I think, when, when that's pushed aside. You know, I call it the postmodern dark age, and I always feel like we're slipping in that direction sometimes. You, you wrote recently, The User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety. Unquestionably, anxiety is on the rise. What can people do to combat that effectively in the course of this pandemic? I, I personally, I mean, my wife does Pilates. I, I smoke weed sometimes, but I, I know for others that's a poor suggestion because it can make anxiety worse. What is there something you recommend based on based on your research? You're gonna hate the answer because it's it's, it's sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's what everyone knows we're supposed to do. Um, and first of all, I think we need to be careful not to to um, you know I, I I'm not a mental health expert, but I'm fortunate to have colleagues that are are you know very work very much in this field and, and they're very concerned about the idea of trying to make being anxious into a medical condition you know pathologizing that's terrible <laughs> garbled that word uh but but making it something that it's not right because we all get anxious right of course it's, it's a natural part of being being human and we're seeing that that now right uh, and the things that we can do, you know, so you can sort of ignore the noise. It's about exercise. You know, if you're going to pick one magical thing, it might be, it might be exercise. It's about eating well. It's about surrounding yourself with people that you love, you know, having a good community. Um, it's about not smoking uh, or drinking too much. Um, and it's really about uh, trying to do these things in moderation. And, and, and it sounds so obvious, but there is actually good empirical evidence to support a lot of that. And then, of course, when you do feel like there you are having uh, mental health struggles, to, to know when to reach out to health professionals, to family, and, and to feel open and to be able to talk about it. Uh, and again, there's good research to, to support all of those things. And, and in that book um, I, uh, that was actually pushed because of the pandemic, um, I talk about how you know, we live in this fear culture and how so much of, of what we hear day to day uh, heightens our concern, heightens our fear, uh, and distracts us from the things that we really can do to live a healthy lifestyle. So my wife is right, is what you're telling me, as as is so often the case. <laughs> for, for and you also, I mean, this is a recurring theme, but you are not only focused on on addressing and rebutting harmful myths and pseudoscience and misinformation, but to lay out the facts of what is true. And so you you also wrote the cure for everything. How do we achieve a healthy lifestyle? And presumably a lot of the same advice you just provided rings true for health more generally as well. It, it does. It really does. Um, we live at a time when there is so much misinformation about how to live a healthy lifestyle. You know, the wellness industry is a multi-trillion, trillion-dollar industry, and most of that money is being spent on stuff that doesn't work. You know, it's a pseudoscientific industry by and large, by and large. Uh, or an industry that doesn't have a good science base behind it. It markets all of these ideas. Again, it creates anxiety. It, it tries to tell us we're supposed to be doing these special things. When in reality, the bulk of your wellness is going or your health is going to come from doing, you know, first of all, pick your parents, you know, socioeconomics, right? <laughs> pick your genes right. and pick your socioeconomics, obviously so, so important. But beyond that, again, you're talking about not smoking, exercise, sleep, eating well, classic preventative strategies like getting vaccinated, wearing a seatbelt. Uh, there really is 
there really is no magic. And if you do those things, I mean, that's going to take you 98% of the way towards a healthy lifestyle. And you are also nothing if not persistent because in 2013, I read an article of yours that was calling into question the Alberta government's decision to put a stamp on naturopathy and homeopathy by association. And most recently, you've written an article in Nature suggesting that on the way out of this pandemic, we have to remain focused on the pursuit of truth. And that's going to that's gonna mean we face some hard questions about our current practices in our, in our institutions and you know, within our health authorities. You're, you're right. I, that's been a very consistent concern of mine. And uh, I, I find it tremendously frustrating that we've kind of legitimized a lot of these, a lot of these practices. And I understand why that happened. You know, there's public interest in these practices. Uh, there's belief uh, amongst people that it gives them some relief. Um, they may enjoy the ritual. And again, I've tried a lot of these things, um, a lot of these alternative uh, practices, and they're almost always a pleasant experience. Uh, you know, someone's listening to you. So sometimes someone's touching you, you're relaxing. Uh, but there really is no evidence to support almost all of them. And, and we have that evidence base. It's not like they haven't been studied. We know a lot of this stuff doesn't work. And the, the problem is we've kind of legitimized it. We've tolerated it. At a minimum, we've tolerated it. And so now we're in the middle of a crisis. So we tolerated it in the past. And now we're in the middle of a crisis and we have these people offering colonics to boost your immune system or IV vitamin therapy to boost your immune system or uh, a spinal manipulation therapy to boost your immune system. You know, that idea was bunk before the pandemic. It's bunk now and it's going to be bunk after the pandemic. So I really think that we need to come up with a, a conceptually coherent way to deal with these, these issues. You know, the toleration of pseudoscience, I think, has got us into trouble. And I hope what, one of the legacies uh, from this crisis is we recognize that reality. And it's shocking in some ways. I mean, you wrote in 2013 that a, a 2010 review of the best evidence at that time had concluded that homeopathic remedies have no effects beyond placebo. I certainly recall learning in a philosophy class at, at Queens many years ago that therapeutic touch was completely bunk. And of course, for any sensible person, it's unclear how it could ever work. And yet that was being taught in our public institutions at the time. And in some, I shouldn't say all, in some public institutions at the time. It, it is, when you really get into it, it's kind of shocking, actually. It, it is shocking. It, it's made, and, and therapeutic touch or Reiki is a really good example of it. And, you know, I'll get hate mail, you know, I'll talk about this, but think about how scientifically absurd it is. It's based on the idea that there's a life force energy running through our body that you can manipulate with your hands. You can teach someone to manipulate it with their hands without touching you, right? It's completely absurd. And what's also interesting is often it's justified because of cultural reasons, although there's this long history to it that justifies it. When so often the most popular alternative therapies do not have this long, rich cultural history. Reiki, for example, roughly 1920s. Did you know that? In 1920s, <laughs> Japan. So not that recent right? Homeopathy from Germany, not that long ago. Chiropractic, same kind of story. Natural, uh, naturopathy, uh, again, fairly recent from the United States. These aren't these kind of rich, culturally different. So these are the Mormonism or Scientology of, of, uh, of alternative therapies. Scientology, I think would be a really good <laughs> example, but, but we don't treat them that way. We give them this reverence, right, of being this exotic other that deserves our respect. When in fact, it's just a fairly recent, I hate this, this word, Western development that is be, that's been unproven, but we still tolerate it. And I think that's both fascinating and troubling.
And you focus on these issues in the course of a Netflix show, The User's Guide to Cheating Death. I think it's incredible. I mean, you're a, a University of Alberta professor. I have to say, I speak to a lot of professors. I can't think of another professor I've spoken to that has uh, their own Netflix show. How, how did that come about? Because of my books I've written for the general public, and you know, I talked to a great production team, Peacock Alley Entertainment, which we've done a lot of, I've done a lot of stuff with now. Uh, and they just, we just, our visions completely lined up. You know, there, there was this idea that maybe I should try to do a show that's more like a talk show or something like that. And I thought, oh, it's not me. Our visions totally lined up because I wanted to do something that had a great look to it, that you know, had, was fun, uh, and really tackled these these topics in a very science based way, right? And we almost got no notes on it. They let us do what we want, um, <laughs> what we wanted. And it, it was a fantastic experience. Now, I, here's some gossip. I don't know if you knew this. Gwyneth Paltrow's show went on Netflix. I'm sure you heard about that. Yeah, the, so the silly, show goes silly on goop Netflix. show, yeah. Yeah, the goop show goes on Netflix. Our show comes off. So what? you can do the math. I probably shouldn't say more than well, I thought, that. I thought, so I was under the impression that you got re-upped for a second season, but that's... Oh, we, we, have, we have two seasons. Uh, okay. And we have you know, it's going to go forward and we, we have a lot of other things um in the so mix. hey but hang on so i got the the, t the timeline right here yeah so <laughs> you can so, do the map from the time so goop goes on and shortly thereafter you come off ours actually goes ours goes off right before theirs starts going right before oh, i see uh, and you can as i said you can do the math you are a <laughs> you are well you're a more public facing Canadian professor than most, but you certainly don't have the cash draw that Gwyneth Paltrow has. So I guess Netflix made a made a made a financial decision there, not a not a decision based on the best evidence. Uh, that that's right, and, it, and it, you know, I, I will neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> but it is frustrating because it's not like our show was big. Do you know what I mean? You know, right. was, you know the response was awesome, and you know, but. It was, uh, you know, so you almost feel like there's a little bit of spite uh, in there from the, the Goop uh, community, but hey. <laughs> well, if, if, if nothing else, it reminds us that Gwyneth Paltrow continues to be wrong about everything. So, uh, Tim, thanks for taking the time, and I look forward to when, when your work with the Royal Society of Canada Task Force comes to a close and you do have recommendations. I, I look forward to working together with you and other experts to tackle this issue. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. I really appreciate Tim's persistency in combating false information on and offline. We need more people like Tim out there doing just that to ultimately ensure that truth wins in the end. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca. And as always, you can recommend future topics and guests on social media at BEYNate.